So we also see a warning in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, where Paul tells the church that anyone preaching a gospel contrary to the one that he has taught, such a one should be accursed. So to spend an eternity with God, we must believe his gospel, his good news, the gospel of the cross. We're not going to dive too much this morning into these different false gospels. We might touch on a few points here and there, but ultimately, we will focus on the true gospel to give us a standard by which we can test all others. It's the same idea as the analogy we might have heard, you might have heard before as well, regarding counterfeit money. How do people learn to identify counterfeit money? Not by studying the thousands of different false uh, counterfeits that are out there. You would have to memorize so much. But memorize the true dollar, the true bill, and you can recognize everything else that stands in contrast to that. And it's the same way with doctrine. It's the same way with the gospel message. Recognize the true gospel and everything else that is different you will recognize then as being counterfeit. So four points we want to understand about the gospel this morning. Four points. One, we want to look at the character of God. With the character of God. Two, the sinfulness of man, who we are. Three, the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. And four, the necessity of faith. So these are four points that we want to look at. They won't necessarily be all-inclusive and exhaustive on each one of them, but should give us a good understanding of what this message of the gospel, this good news entails. So one, the character of God. And I'll repeat these points as I go through the sermon as well. But point number one, the character of God. The gospel must begin and end with the glory of God. Genesis chapter 1, 1. A verse that we're all familiar with, and yet it tells us so much God is our creator. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The fact that God is our creator means that he owns us. We are his. We belong to him. We are not our own. The one who created us has authority over us. It is in the same manner for us. If by our hands we make something, be it out of wood, out of steel, whatever it is, if we create an item, it is foolish to think that that item would have authority over us as the creator. And it is the same foolishness, and even more so with God. We must submit to him as our creator. He is the one who created all things. He is the one who then has authority over all of creation. God is also our righteous judge. He is our creator and he is our judge. The psalmist writes in chapter 7, verse 8, Psalm chapter 7, starting in verse 8, we see this. The Lord judges the peoples, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. 
you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. We see we are accountable to God as our judge. He judges all those whom he has created, and we will stand before our creator God in judgment, and he will be just. He is a just God. He is a just judge. He must use right judgment or he would not himself be righteous. So every judgment that he will use will be just and it will be righteous. Romans 2.6 tells us he will render to each one according to their works. And we often hear in the, in the balance of good and evil the argument made that a person who spent their lifetime may be involved in their community, doing charity work, helping orphans, whatever it may be, doing all these good works. But this person in a fit of rage maybe were to kill someone very close to you and is now in front of the judge in the court system. And the judge looks at all these wonderful things that this person has done and declares him free to go. Because for this one wretched evil act, he has this pile of good that he has done. And so because of that, we'll let him go. Would you feel that justice has been served? Absolutely not. Would this judge have been just? No, he would not have been. And such it is with God. We have all sinned against a just and holy God. And we are accountable to God as our creator, as our judge. We are accountable for, to him for the penalty of our sins, which he says the wages of our sin is death. So every one of us having sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of this, each one of us deserves this penalty, this penalty of death. God's wrath poured out on us for that because he is just and he is righteous. But as part of the character of God, not only is he our creator, not only is he our righteous judge, but he is also our Savior. Such a beautiful part of, the God's, of God's character. He is our Savior. He loves us because we are his creation. We are made in his image. Though we sin, we are image bearers of the holy God who created us. And he is loving towards us 
And we need him for our very survival, our very breath that we took this morning when we woke up. The fact that we woke up this morning is a gracious act on his part against a sinful creature. We depend fully on God for the very breath that is within us. Very familiar verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He is our Savior. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing them to the cross. As our loving Savior, God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him through the cross. Though we are sinners, deserving of all his wrath, he has loved us and has made a way for us. Why is this such a big deal? Because I think sometimes we fail to understand how much our sin separates us from God. So point number two, point number two in the outline, the second point we need to understand is the sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man. To use some strong language, we are morally evil beings. Romans 3 verse 10 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is confronting the division in the Roman church. The Jewish believers were looking down on the Gentile believers for not worshiping in the same manner as they were. And we see in this passage, like so many of Paul's passages, where he is showing us that the church, the people in the church are the same. No one is better than the other due to their ethnicity or cultural background, but all are morally bankrupt And as quoted, there is none who does good. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile apart 
from the work of Christ. We are united as unbelievers, the same as the church should be united as believers. All, all have turned aside. None does good. None is righteous. Jesus himself says we are spiritually sick and we need a doctor. He says he came not for the righteous, but the unrighteous. So we see here our need to recognize our own unrighteousness. If we feel that we have earned righteousness through our works, by our own merit, by what we have done, then Jesus says he did not even come for us because he came to save the sinner. He came to save the unrighteous, not the righteous. So if we were able to obtain righteousness by our works, then Christ's death, Christ did then not die for us because again, specifically, he says he came for the unrighteous to make them righteous through his sacrifice. So we must recognize as part of this message who we are. We are unrighteous. Our works do not make us righteous. Going to church Sunday mornings does not make us righteous. It is the work of Christ to which we look because in and of ourselves we cannot obtain that. The Bible tells us we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin. We are not free to live how we please, but we desire to serve our flesh. This is our will. We desire to do the will of our father, the devil, the gospel of John tells us. We are slaves to sin. John chapter 8, verse 33 to 34. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it then that you say you will become free? They weren't slaves. They were free. Free men in their eyes. And Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And this is their response. We are Abraham's offspring. We have never been enslaved. How can you say then that we will become free? Jesus answered to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul speaks of this in 2 Timothy verse chapter 2, verse 24 to 26. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. And here's why. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is why the Lord's servant preaches and teaches, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. 
Because the people that he is reaching, the world that we are trying to reach, is ensnared by the devil captured to do his will. And this is what we need to be set free from. We are slaves to sin. This idea out there that religion enslaves people, ensnares people, but to reject that is what gives you freedom. That is such a false and temporal view of freedom. Because spiritually, we are all slaves. Slaves of the devil. And then we are purchased by Christ. And we are his servants, his slaves, to do his will. We get a bit of a picture then who we are without Christ. We've covered only a few short passages in Scripture And we've already seen the condition of humankind apart from God. We are morally evil. We are spiritually sick. We are slaves of sin. We are blinded to truth. We are children of wrath and we are spiritually dead. We are in a hopeless state. The very inclination of our human nature is evil. It is to do that which satisfies the flesh. We cannot choose to do good in the sense that will put us into right standing with God. A slave cannot set himself free. A blind person cannot regain his own sight. A deaf person cannot make himself hear. We are objects of wrath Can we appease that wrath? We are dead, the Bible says. Can we bring ourselves to life? The obvious answer to these questions is a clear and resounding no. We cannot bring ourselves to light. We cannot, through our own merit and righteousness, appease God's wrath. We are separated from him. We are considered his enemies. And this paints a bleak portrait for us. And it does not do much for our self-esteem. In fact, it should do the opposite than is what is prominently promoted in our culture and in many of our churches. Just be yourself. Be who you want to be. Just feel better about yourself. You do you, right? You see, the point is, we are wicked people. We are unrighteous. Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. So if we recognize our own unrighteousness, we must then recognize that according to the God's word, it is his wrath that is being poured out on us. We are told to die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow Christ. The way of the church, the wisdom of God and how he saves people and how the church is to be a light in this world is very different than the natural way. That is why it's not just about being ourselves. It's about dying to ourselves. Putting off the desires of the flesh 
and seeking that which is pure, true righteousness found in Jesus Christ. We can do nothing of this apart from divine intervention. Apart from the work of the Spirit of God, we are helpless and hopeless to do anything about our spiritual condition in and of ourselves. And that is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of the good news. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the fact that we are God's enemies and that we are going to be put under his wrath. It doesn't end with the fact that we cannot come into his presence without being struck dead because he is holy. That is the beauty of the gospel and that is our next point. The sufficiency of Christ because he has done it. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. The life of Christ displayed the righteousness of God. Hebrews chapter 1. Again, a very familiar passage. But such a beautiful example of who Christ is. Such a Christological verse. Starting in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. The first three verses. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Listen to verse 3. He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, right hand of the majesty on high. This is Jesus, our Savior. He is the exact imprint of God. And he came to make purification for sins. We read in our opening scripture in Romans chapter 3 that the righteousness of God was manifested to all of us through faith in the work of Christ. And we are justified by His grace through faith in the gospel. So we saw we are slaves to sin. So we needed someone who is not a slave to sin. Someone who has conquered sin by their life. And we find this in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 to 16 tells us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet 
without sin. He is not a slave to sin. And because the life of Christ displayed the righteousness of God, his death was able to satisfy the wrath of God. Through the gospel of the cross, through the cross, we see the wrath of God was satisfied, his love exemplified, and his name ultimately is glorified. His wrath was satisfied, his love exemplified, and his name glorified. Romans 3 verse 25 tells us that God put him, speaking of Jesus, forward as a propitiation by his blood. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. Jesus Christ, this God, the Son, became a sacrifice for you and for me. He turned aside the wrath of God. And this, turning aside the wrath of God, this is what propitiation means. He turned aside the holy, the just, the good wrath of God that was meant to destroy us and our sin. It was meant to destroy our sin. He turned it aside by taking our sins upon himself on the cross. And then the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. You see, God, as we saw earlier, is a just and righteous God. He must and he will punish sin or else he is not just. And in this is the way that he has planned from an eternity past to be just and still the justifier. Christ took our sin upon himself when he was on the cross. And then God poured his wrath on him. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. We'll read the whole chapter. Because Isaiah prophesied this in the, whole, in the Old Testament. And listen to these words. Let's pay attention to the detail that Isaiah is prophesying with regarding this. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the Lord, arm of the Lord, been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow and yet acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ was crushed for our iniquities. His chastisement brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And this, this is the really good news. His death satisfied the wrath of God. And his resurrection demonstrated the power of God. God vindicated the work of Christ and the cross for our sins by raising him from the grave. And in that, Christ conquered death. He conquered sin in his life, in living the perfect life, keeping the law perfectly. And he conquered death and being raised from the dead. Being raised from the grave. This means that because of Christ's work, because he took our sins and he bore the wrath of God for them, this means he cleared us of this blame. He cleared us of our guilt. He proved us to be right. We are justified because of the sufficiency of Christ and his work that he accomplished on the cross. And so to summarize our first three points that we've looked at so far, we've looked at the character of God. He is our just creator, judge, and savior. We've looked at the sinfulness of man. We are dead, objects of wrath, morally evil. We are spiritually sick. We cannot do enough good to please God. But we see the sufficiency of Christ 
Christ comes and his life displays God's righteousness. His death satisfies God's wrath. And his resurrection demonstrates God's power. And so now we want to look at the fourth and final point for this morning. And the fourth point of our study of the gospel is the necessity of faith. The necessity of faith. We looked at the first three points. But how does this become real in my life? How does this become real in your life? Let's be very clear. Jesus is the basis of our salvation. He has done all the work. His work is the basis of our salvation. He purchased righteousness for you and me by his blood. This is a free gift of God. This means there is no work for you to do. Jesus has done it all. His own words on the cross were, It is finished. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, in the first 10 verses, the Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, we too were children of wrath. But... God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The whole plan of salvation, the gospel, the message of the cross, is all about Jesus Christ. All about His works, not ours. The gospel message begins and ends with Jesus. And as we see in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. Our salvation begins and ends because of the work of Jesus Christ. It is by grace that we are saved, the undeserved, unmerited, and unearned gift of God. It is Him that bestows His grace upon us 
draws us to repentance and gives us faith. The gospel never exalts mankind. Any gospel that does this, throw it out. The gospel is about Jesus, not about myself or anyone else. We are made righteous because of what Christ did, not because of what you did. The Bible calls your works of the flesh as filthy rags. It is only looking to Christ and faith in what he did. This is the basis of our justification before God. Prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22, he says, turn to me and be saved. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. It is only by looking to him that we can be saved. He is the only God with the power to save Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God. There is no other. We turn to him in faith. This is the necessity of faith. Faith means is the means of our salvation. It is the opposite of works. Galatians 2, Paul tells us that it is not by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ that we are made righteous. Not by works of the law, but faith in Christ. We see faith is the opposite of works. Through faith we place our trust in God and the finished work of Christ. There is nothing we can do but trust in what has been done for us. We cannot earn our own righteousness once again. But we trust in what has been done for us by the work of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, in first, chapter 5 verse 1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been received reconciliation. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have been justified by faith and we have been reconciled by faith. One aspect of our faith that must always be there, something that we must not neglect, repentance. To repent in simple terms means to change our mind about something and a change of mind will result in action. To change your mind about something that does not change your action makes us a hypocrite. We say one thing, but we do another. That, as we saw last week, is the definition of hypocrisy. So true repentance, a true change of mind, a true change of heart about our sin, about who we are, and about who God is and our separation from Him, recognizing the sufficiency of Christ, will result in a change of action. And I've used the example before It's like walking on the edge of a cliff with a hundred foot drop with strong winds and you know that if you continue on this edge you will sooner or later tumble down to your death on the rocks below. So naturally with this knowledge naturally you will try to move away from the edge. You will try to move away from it because this knowledge will produce an an action or a reaction. And it is likewise with repentance. If we change our mind about who God is, if we change our mind about who we are, about sin, and about the finished work of Christ, we turn then from sin. We turn from ourselves and we turn to Christ. Repentance is so much more than just being sorry for our sins. Someone can be genuinely sorry for what they've done because their actions were found out. That is not true repentance. True repentance is an acknowledgement that what we have done and what we have continued doing and who we are apart from Christ, we are sinners. And we turn from our own sufficiency and we turn to the sufficiency of Christ. Repentance is a complete change of mind, a complete change of heart by faith. It changes us. We have been made new creation. We have been born again. We are no longer the old, but we are the new. And because of this, in order to be saved, we must be born again. And I want to read John chapter 3, verse 3 to 6. Romans chapter 5, we read, we, we will read John chapter 3, 3 to 6 in a moment here. But in Romans 5, we read, we have been justified by faith. We were enemies of God 
and we were reconciled to God by faith. So that's what happens. We are justified by faith. We are made right before God the Father by faith in Christ. We experienced a new birth. We were born again. This changes us. This makes us a new creation. You remember Jesus' conversation in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus? In John chapter 3, starting in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. So what happens when we're born again? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So first, God must open our eyes. The whole context behind this facet of Nicodemus is a good man. He's a religious leader. He is devoted to the Word. He has taught others the Word. But his realization needs to come that he is dead and he needs life and he's never been born spiritually. And With all that he's done, he has not done enough to be made righteous. God help us to see this as well. No matter what we have done, we are still dead. You cannot make yourself be born again. God has to open your eyes to this. And then God has to change our heart. He said in the passage we read, you must be born of water and the Spirit. You need a change that happens inside of you. Salvation, and don't miss this, does not happen from the outside in. Salvation is what happened from the inside out. God changes our heart. It is a change that happens on the inside and then the fruit of it is manifested on the outside through our works, through our actions, through our speech. It is not our external works and deeds that happen and change our heart. Salvation happens in the heart. It's what Titus 3 talks about. Talks about washing our hearts. 1 Peter 1 verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word does this to us. The whole background behind John chapter 3, being born of water and of spirit, the whole background is found in Ezekiel chapter 36 where the prophet Ezekiel talks about water and the Spirit. And I'll just go through it here now. We don't need to turn there. But the prophet Ezekiel talks about this water and Spirit. 
What happens when God changes our hearts? First, he cleanses us. Ezekiel 36. In the Old Testament, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. That's what happens when we're born again. He cleans us, and he cleanses us. God changes our heart. He cleanses us of our sin. He washes us by the power of his word. But that's not all. John says we must be born again by water and spirit. Water and spirit. He cleanses us, and second, he indwells us. I will give you a new heart, the prophet Ezekiel writes. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God puts his spirit inside of us and that's what we need. We don't just need cleansing. This is what oftentimes we think when we think of the gospel and salvation. We think, well, I've been cleansed from my sin. Now I'm going to go live however I want. This is not the gospel. You can't be cleansed from your sin and then just go and live however you want. You're cleansed from your sin and you're indwelled by the Spirit of God. And that means you live now how He wants you to. Paul says in Romans 8, 9 through 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life, in, or give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in each one of us when God raises us from being dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we receive salvation by grace through faith, not only are we cleansed, we are made a new creation by the very Spirit of God dwelling in us. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of us being ambassadors of Christ. This means we are His representatives. We are His workmen on this earth. We represent Christ in His kingdom. Romans 6, again another very familiar passage that we're, we've read many times and I'm sure you have as well clearly lays out this change as well that takes place when we are born again. Listen to Paul as he addresses the concern that since we are saved by grace, and he just finished with a statement where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And then he assumes the reaction, what then, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Paul, we want God's grace. We want much of his grace. And you told us that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So is this then 
how we are to react. Paul says says in chapter 6, by no means. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For death, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because of this transformation, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the whole concept of even desiring such a thing is to continue in our sin unquestioned. This whole concept is questioned because we have died to sin. Our old self was crucified. and We were raised with Christ. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We live with Christ. And this is the picture we have in the ordinance of baptism. We have died to sin and we were buried with Christ. And then we are raised to newness of life. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Romans 6.14 says, Sin no longer has dominion over us. It no longer has this rule over us. We live with Christ. And as Paul points back in verse 11, he says again, So you must also consider yourselves. Believe this of yourselves. Some translations say, Reckon yourselves. Think this, we are dead to sin and alive to God. Paul points back to our faith. Believe this, consider yourselves, know that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As a Christian, do you believe this? Are you giving sin more credit than maybe we should sometimes? I believe this is why we so often fail in our Christian walk. We need to consider ourselves, know that Christ has set us free from the power and bondage of sin. Does this mean we do not sin? No. We are all guilty of that. 
But we praise God because he has set us free from that power and dominion that sin has over us so that he might work in us and he might continue to sanctify us and he might continue to purify us and make us a lamp as a city on a hill that people might see his glory through us. And one of that is, is when we do sin, we repent of that. Because we know he has taken our sin and nailed it on the cross. And he has paid for this penalty. And he has imputed his righteousness then to us. We must believe that we are then dead to sin. It no longer has dominion over us. We are bought with a a price. And as Paul again says in Galatians chapter 2, it is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. We have to recognize that as children of God. If you are a child of God, know that you have been bought with a price, a very expensive price, the price of the life, the blood of Jesus Christ himself. God become man and was murdered on the cross, took our sins upon him. The wrath of God was poured out on him and he died. And he went into the grave. And then he rose again, conquering death and sin And by that, he gives us life. And this is who we are. When we place our faith and trust in the work of Christ, the sufficient work of Christ, he removes that penalty, that blame, that guilt from us, and he puts his righteousness on us. And God, as our creator, as our righteous judge, and as our savior, when he looks on us as his children, He sees the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ. That is who we are as his children. That is the standing we have before a holy, righteous judge, creator, God. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are united with him. And this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the good news that when we put our faith in Christ... We become partakers of this good news. We become adopted children into the family of God. We can call him father. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer enslaved to the devil. He is no longer our father. We are children of God. This is our standing before God, because of this good news, because of the gospel message. And I would be remiss to not implore you this morning, if you are sitting here in our midst, if you are listening online, if you have not placed your faith and trust in the work of our Savior, in the work of Jesus Christ, If you have not turned from your sin, dear friend, you are still under the wrath and judgment of God. And he will be just. He will do what is right and avenge all sin. Look to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from trusting in yourself. Look to Him. Turn to Him and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For He is the Lord. He is God. And there is no other to whom we can look for our salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning again, God, and we are humbled that we have such a privilege, a privilege to come to you as children. As children approach a father, Lord, that is how we can come to you with our hurts, with our desires. We can pour out our hearts to you, God, because you know our hearts inside out. Help us to boldly come to you, God, because, because of the way that Christ has made for us. He has imputed his righteousness to us, and we are now hidden in Christ. Help us to understand that, Lord, that even in our darkest times, and when we suffer, when we are trials, when we are battling, when life is hard, implant in us the knowledge of the fact that we are dead to our sin and you have made us alive through Christ Jesus. And God, I pray for each one that is listening to this that may not be, that may not be your child yet, Lord. I pray that you would open their eyes to this gospel, open their eyes to their standing before you. There is none righteous, no, not one. And they might look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and to see that he has accomplished this. But God, being rich in mercy, Lord, you have made a way for us. You have made a way that we are able to turn to you for our salvation. The only God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.